welcome here this morning. Thank you, everyone who is here and has helped make this place kind. Um, I am Shane, and my pronouns are he, him. Uh, I have done a very dangerous thing. Um, I thought it was a really good idea to, like, I had this idea of, like, three Sundays in a row that kind of connected to each other because the thing I wanted to talk about didn't really fit in one Sunday. Um, and I wanted to leave space for feedback and discussion and reflective practices and things. And being ADHD, my brain saw three Sundays and did like something along, oh, there's a PowerPoint here somewhere. It's somewhere. Um, so this is, <laughs> This is what's currently happening when you make that much space for a brain like mine. Uh, made worse by the fact that I'm in the middle of writing a thesis I'm supposed to have finished already and have spent kind of three years on, even though it's not three years worth of work. Um, and that is definitely bleeding into <laughs> this story. Um, and so I thought this morning would be a good idea to take on um, the hegemony of neoliberalism um, as we talk about Jesus. So... Um, I'm gonna try really hard. <laughs> I'm gonna try really hard not to do this. <laughs> um, and just take each Sunday little piece at a time. But what you've got to bear with me is that uh, this is a bit of a slow build and I'm gonna like kind of get try and get like one little foundation down and then another and then another. And there are so many tangents that my brain is trying to go on right now as per. Um, but I'll try and curb that uh, if you can live in the mystery of some of it. Um, if SpongeBob has taught us anything, that imagination and mystery are good things. Uh, and I'm also going to try really hard not to kind of sound like some weird Jesus-like sage prophet um, who just tries to confuse people um, to sound mysterious and powerful. Um, we'll do our best. We're going to start with a poem this morning by David Gate, who is a uh, guy from the UK, um, uh, but now lives in the States and is one of my favorite Instagram poets, which is the only kind I have access to right now. You got this, the influencer tells me as I hide from my children in the bathroom again and consider my inadequacy as a parent, as both a parent and a functional adult, so I scroll down. You are enough, doesn't quite cut it, when I am out, I'm all out of time, out of patience, sorry, out of money, out of patience, and the odious abundance in my house is screen time, so I scroll down. You are a child of God, I read upon the throne of my toilet seat and wonder to myself if he hides in the bathroom sometimes too. Uh, I read this this week and just remembered at some point yelling at my wife during lockdown <laughs> because she had taken too much of her toilet time and was ignoring the fact that one of my children was pulling a handful of hair out of the other's head. Um, and everyone knows that you can only go to the toilet for more than three minutes a day twice, because no human being needs more than that. Um, and that felt really good. 
<laughs> very proud of myself. Um, we are in a series talking about Jesus um, as a wisdom tradition, looking at the way of Jesus as a path to wisdom um, and looking at rituals and practices as a community which might ground us in wisdom. Um, we talked before Lent about Spirit Sophia, um, the embodiment of God in the Old Testament um, as Sophia, the wisdom which comes and visits and calls us to good places. And we're trying to work out as a community what practices old and new we might take on to help us walk a path of wisdom and justice and kindness and love. Um, and we're drawing from the story of Jesus um, as we do that. We discussed at the start of this, the series is called Another Story, and we discussed at the start of the series that we are shaped by the stories we live in. Sometimes these are really helpful, sometimes they're really harmful, sometimes it's really hard to tell. Sometimes these are big stories of our culture that shape who we're supposed to be, who we're expected to be, and who are, what we're expected to want. And sometimes they're the small scripts we were once told that for better or worse, stay with us. Sometimes these stories are explicit and known to us, and sometimes they are hidden and carried around subconsciously or at the periphery of our vision. One of the things I'm most grateful for growing up in Christianity, yes, it is still me, you heard that. <laughs> um, I don't talk that fondly that often about growing up in Christianity, but here we are. I um, want to talk a little bit about one of the things I'm actually profoundly grateful for growing up in church. Um, and I'm not sure the churches I grew up in would necessarily be that pumped about this, but they taught me something, and that I'm really grateful. They actually taught me a lot of things. They taught me about grounded, practical love and kindness. Um, yeah, they taught me lots of things, but here's another thing they taught me. Um, it's the ability to live in the tension of resisting dominant narratives, which is weird because religion has so often been used as a form of control, and I grew up in quite high coercion forms of religion, um, where asking questions was bad, <laughs> having doubts was frowned upon, saying no was not allowed, the consequences for getting it wrong were eternal. So you can see how religion and control often come together, but the more I've sat within the world as it is, the more I think that we actually need resources for resistance to all kinds of big stories. Um, and oddly enough, Christianity is where I have found one of um, those things. And it's been a, an actual practice ground. Um, I was raised to be suspicious of what the world told me. I was told there was another story. I was told there was someone with a better plan. I was told that despite appearances, I was special, loved, and held. And at the end of the day, even if everyone else thought I was a loser, that I'd be vindicated in the end. And even if the reading of the narratives I was raised to resist weren't that great, they definitely formed me to ask questions about the expectations that culture placed on me and just and just kind of expect that in many ways I wouldn't fit in and that that was okay. Which is really handy for a very scrawny and quite dorky kid with a massive smart mouth. Ironically, 
these resources were the things that also gave me the framework for questioning the religious narrative I'd been handed. When I realized that evil and harm weren't just out there in the world, but also in here. And that all goodness didn't lie in here, but also out there. It empowered me to start pulling things apart. We've talked about church as a place where we can examine the stories of our lives and reflect on them together. Where we can also sit with the story of Jesus and see if it has another story to offer. We've talked about the ways in which we might sit and look at the world around us and work out whether the world we're creating is actually good news to the poor and where it's not, work out how to be a community of resistance. So one of the things I want to talk about and kind of touch on in the next few weeks is looking at the story of Jesus and his relationship to expectations and so many ways the expectations of others shaped him and made him who he was. Yet there were other stories that seemed to grip him and caused him to radically disappoint some people. So I want to talk today, just touch on the idea of Jesus as the failed Messiah. Um, one of the reasons um, the kind of post-Jesus um, disciples found it so hard to get people to take their message seriously um, is because Jesus died. <laughs> and Messiahs, there's one rule about being a Messiah um, is you don't, you don't die. Like, that's, like the, the definition of being a Messiah is that you save the world and don't die. Definitely don't die at the hands of the Romans. <laughs> um, there were big expectations about what Messiah would do. So Messiah was um, kind of like a, an embodied character within the social imaginary of Israel. They had been kicked around and oppressed for a long time by lots of different big nation bullies. Um, they, were, they found themselves in the time of Jesus stuck as captives in their own land. They're kind of like, yay, we got brought home to the promised land again. And like, boo, the Romans are still here. Um, and no matter kind of when they got a win or when they stepped forward, they kind of get knocked back again. And so they had, you know, and I'm kind of talking gross generalizations because, of course, they're not a homogenous people. Um, but many of them had dreams of when a Messiah would come and put the world to rights um, and make everything better. Take down Rome, boot them from the land, restore Israel to the top and make them a light for all nations. God would show up in a big way. Heaven and earth, which was kind of dislocated, um, would be brought back together, and God would dwell on earth like was always supposed to be. Um, and all the bully nations would be put down, and there was potentially a violent overthrow where uh, Israel, who kind of felt a bit puny, would feel mighty again, and all the nations of the world would go, wow, we thought you were a dork, but you're actually really cool. <laughs> How come we can't be like you? Um, and so every mum in that time, and again, every being gross generalization, but lots of mums at that time, longed for their child to give birth to the Messiah. They would have children dreaming that their son would be the Messiah that would come and deliver Israel from Rome um, and take them down and stop their vicious overtaxing um, of the lands, stop their messing with everyone's socioeconomic conditions, stop them um, putting down um, wannabe messiahs and crucifying them on the side of the road. 
I don't know about you, but um, I know some people are having children here, and whether you're considering Judas as a name for your child. <laughs> but Judas was an unbelievably popular name of the day. Judas, um, lots and lots and lots and lots of kids were called Judas uh, because Judas was the name of Judas Maccabeus. And you all know about Judas Maccabeus, don't you? Um, those of you who skipped that lesson, Judas Maccabeus was also known as the Hammer, also a good kid's name. Um, the Hammer was a uh, Jewish man who led a revolt against the Syrians, um, and they had come and polluted the temple and really annoyed everybody, and he led an armed revolt, uh, which was very, very bloody, um, and pushed the Syrians back and... Um, and, and took the land back and had a whole heap of like mighty battles and he was held up in Jewish folklore. Of course, they got squashed again and the Romans came in because every time they got rid of one empire, another empire came in. But every mother longed that Judas Maccabeus would return again in the embodiment of their son, that this Messiah figure would rise up and kick out um, the nasty empire. And so whenever um, someone was pregnant, they would hope that their son would be the Messiah. And... Mary had a vision that her child was from God. Um, and there was great expectations. And the gospel authors kind of set Jesus' story up within this Messiah motif um, that Jesus is going to be the one that is going to be the success and is going to deliver Israel. So they're playing into this motif. And so they... Um, I don't know if my clicker's working, but I'll pretend it is. <laughs> Pretend Antonio doesn't have all the power. Um, so we, we've kind of touched on this a bunch of times during um, Advent. This is our favorite potato cutter um, stencil. Um, and I forgot to reference the artist, but he's brilliant. I can't remember his name. Um, but this is Mary the Revolutionary. And, and she had this um, vision from God that God was going to deliver something and um, through her child and God was going to deliver up Israel. So I thought we might read this. Um, there's two pages of it. So is anyone up for a little bit of scripture reading this morning? It's revolutionary scripture reading, so it's good. Thanks, Jess. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to attend in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Oh, there's more. <laughs> and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, for now... Or on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him for generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of his hearts, on their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Thank you. Sorry, I should have given a trigger warning that I didn't get time to get the inclusive version, so we've got God, he, a lot of. Um, so how do you feel about this as a kind of proclamation? It's pretty optimistic. Yeah. It's really optimistic. How does it sit with you? What kind of emotions come up or thoughts spring out? Or Thanks. Um, there's a lot of sort of power language in there, like strength and brought down, mighty. And, um, and then I'm reflect, it sort of feels like it doesn't feel very... Uh, like feminine in a modern female voice. So I'm wondering if if that's different from those times or if this is through the lens of um, a man that was recording this or, um, yeah, when I hear like modern sort of female voices, there's a different quality, mm. not that I can generalise. And the other thing that stood out for me was, oh, his mercy is for those who fear him. And it's like, oh, not the the fear thing again. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's what stood out. Thank you. It didn't make me reflect on the now, but maybe into Mary's future as she was seeing Jesus being put on, on the cross at quite a young age reflecting on this maybe at that time is there something she must have done as a mother or what could have done for that to be a different yeah just a different interpretation of this compared to how Jesus yeah died mm. I don't know it's just mm. yeah. also <coughs> excuse me similar to the previous point I read this and I think Mary didn't say that like uh, like that's actually and that's something that when I was younger it would never have occurred to me that I think, well, who was there and how do you know? And this doesn't sound like something that a teenager would just spout off with. And I guess the, the church answer is, oh, well, it was inspired and, you know, it was a prophet and whatever. But I just think that's probably not what Mary said. And someone, and I don't know enough about it, but I feel like someone has put, put that there um, for a reason. And I wonder what that reason is and why it's been attributed to Mary. But I, I look at it and go... I don't, I don't think she said it. Yeah. I hear you. I was just thinking, like, when he has brought down the mighty from their thrones, like, wasn't that when the Romans were still in charge of stuff? And um, are, is, are they talking about, like, the, f the future uh, as, as a hope, or are they talking about the distant past, or is this a character? Um, it's... Yeah, the, the, the verb tense is a bit weird to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess if you're sitting with messianic expectation and you believe the Messiah has come, 
that can easily feel like a done thing. Like Messiah that has been promised has arrived and now it's the time. This shit's happening. <laughs> yeah, and it's happening and it's happening now. Mm. Any more? Have a think about if you're a desperate peasant farmer who's watched your cousin be executed by the state, who sits in a tradition that says God looks after you because you're the chosen people and anyone who steps against you, retribution will come. Yeah, it seems a lot more focused on bringing those who are up down than it does bringing those who are down up. I feel like there's just, yeah, more emphasis on these people are getting what's coming to them and, yeah, it doesn't doesn't scream love to me. Pretty interesting in the verse previous, on the previous slide, that they said that, yeah, what was it? It was... It was... Oh, no, no, we're back. It has gone back. That the baby leapt in her womb. That's just, I don't know, a kick is usually what happens, but a whole leaping. Yeah. John was very excited, obviously. <laughs> yeah, some definite narrative devices going on here, huh? Okay, cool. So let's pretend for a minute that we are... <laughs> um, rural Galileans living under a pretty violent state, desperate, like desperate for something to happen because this is not how the story is supposed to go. And this actually really excites us because maybe God will show up. I want you to think for a second to change lens about this being your mum talking about you. So as a child, hearing the story spoken about you, how does that feel? I'm very far away here, but um, it feels like a lot of pressure to me. I'm like, oh, that sounds stressful. Um, I'm glad it's not my mum doing that. Yeah. No, no, not particularly. I, I mean, she could if yeah. she wanted to, yeah. but um, yeah, time. still time, yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, I guess, in a certain sense, this is the the pressure of any kind of migrant family or parent um, of like you're the hope of our family slash our people like you're going to school, you'll make us lots of money, like, um, but I guess in a different context of like, you're gonna murder everybody, thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, 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 yeah. So I guess it's, it's that, that heaping of the desire for the future or the, the, the hope is all in yeah, the children, yeah. yeah. Yeah, strong parallels with that. Yeah, like we, for those of us who aren't, you know, second generation <laughs> immigrants, like, yeah, like it's easy to sit outside of us and not understand what it is to come from a place where 
you just you have a desperate hope that somehow your family might flourish like yeah yeah you can see both sides right yeah I just think it's kind of interesting because it's a it's a teenage mum talking and in an era where perhaps not every baby was born and lived to this is incredible amount of expectation and it also feels like it's definitely expectation of a boy at the time um it's like wow you're not going to just wait and see what happens with this child and how they'll grow up you actually want all of this stuff to happen it's huge it's a huge weight thinking about what it would feel like for her as a mother later down the track to be raising a child and did she have those conflicts about wanting, like, was this always in her mind? Was there a pressure of, or a consciousness of, um, what am I trying to say? Like, it being an option at all or just this is clearly a track. I was reading recently about... Um, prodigies and the the parenting dilemma of that of like do you force them down this really narrow path that they may or may not want versus do you let them be themselves and stray from what you're seeing and I don't even know if this crossed her mind like what was the parenting experience like after this yeah yeah okay last one you've reached your three comment limit well, yeah, bouncing off that, the parenting experience, I was wondering the agency that Mary thought she had. Like, were there ever points growing up where, I don't know, he got sick or something and they went, oh, I could screw this up. Like, I could get in the way of what Gabriel told me. I wonder. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, you see her pop back up. I mean, we're, we're dealing with the story as the story. Like, obviously, we're not trying to deal with it as, like, a historical narrative and try and pick apart which bits happened and which bits didn't. We're kind of viewing this as a literary device. But um, yeah, you see Mary pop back up in the story later on and want Jesus back with her and close to her and wondering why he's not returning home. And, you know, like, and then at the foot of the cross with him, seeing him crucified. And so there's, yeah, like Mary, Mary pops up and down. But I, I, we're going to sit with Jesus for a minute um, and think about Jesus as a character that profoundly disappointed people constantly and lived in kind of tension and dialogue with this story of there's a national story and a national expectation that someone would come in and lead an uprising and take the throne and sit in power and be affirmed by God. And it would somehow mirror the stories that had gone before of great these great people in Israel who had kind of um, brought, brought, brought a taste of freedom, but this would kind of be the final act. Um, and then you see Jesus living in tension with this story and it feels like trying to translate it from within. You see Jesus giving his inaugural address in Luke 4 saying, i am come to bring good news for the poor. Um, and then seeing the people listening to him try and drive him off a cliff. <laughs> <laughs> push him over because he suggested that maybe outsiders would get some of the blessings as well. Um, not a classic, you know, getting carried around in a chair <laughs> um, with everyone cheering your name. You see him infuriating people and disappointing people 
You see him avoiding success. You see him saying things that confuse people so much that they just leave and him not trying to get them back, which is not the best way of kind of growing a public uprising <laughs> and getting a crowd after you. Um, you see him wasting time on insignificant people and drawing them close. Insignificant in the eyes of the way the story is told. You see him scolding important people instead of cozying up to them and driving them away. You see him healing and feeding commoners. And then sometimes when it gets too much, you see him hiding from them. There's sick people lining up to be healed, and Jesus is like, oh, I'm really hungry and tired, and like slips away and leaves them there. People that need healing <laughs> and have no other alternative. Jesus leaves them sick and looks after himself. You see him letting down his friends and telling them they're wanting the wrong things. You see the opportunity for violence. In the Garden of Gethsemane, with Simon cutting off an ear, and maybe it'll spark the uprising, and then Jesus healing the soldier, and going, no, this is not the way. You see Jesus ending his life with a crown of thorns, showing mercy to a criminal, a moment of existential despair, asking why God has abandoned him, and then dying, which again is not a very successful Messiah. <laughs> but the gospel writers put all of this in the story. They frame it at the start. They follow that tension the whole way through. And they end it with a resurrection. Now, this resurrection gets interpreted as a vindication. The vindication of God. It gets interpreted as God saying, you followed faithfully right to the death. And I'm vindicating you by bringing you back and saying, you walked to the right path. I'm just going to do things differently than people expected. And I just want to sit with this idea as a community of vindication of what it is to live a life where we resist particular scripts, where we're prepared to let people down, where we're prepared to fail and not succeed in the hope that somehow the work of our lives will be vindicated. Because these are some of the things I think where we need to wrestle with in, we've got like a whole world of spoiling scripts telling us what success is, both for ourselves and for all of humanity. We're constantly creating worlds. And the world is creating a particular kind of world. And something central to the Christian tradition is this idea that sometimes you need to take a different path in the belief that it will be vindicated one day. That even though no one else said you succeeded or won, 
that something in the future, God or history would say, that was good and that was right. Um, now, we all know Christian tradition well enough to know <laughs> there's plenty of deviations from that path. But if there's plenty of resources too. The early church, their thing was they just gave all their stuff away <laughs> and lived communally in ways that cared for the poor. The church not long after that dealt with the plagues that swept all through their lands by staying present and taking care of plague victims. It's not that you're classic living your best life story, <laughs> but you can look back on it and go, wow, there was something truly beautiful about lives given up for the least of these, because that's what sat at the center of their story. So, what I'm wondering is if the story of Jesus can empower us to wrestle with and question the scripts that we live within, whether it can give us permission to fail where we feel like we need to. Maybe it can be a story of comfort to help us feel less alone when we feel like life isn't working out like the, like the way, way we thought it might. Maybe it can inspire us to explore what a life of deep meaning might look like. Maybe it, it could encourage us to look where Jesus looked, to the margins, and ask what kind of world we're creating and what, kind of soci what society might look like if it took their experiences seriously. Maybe it can resource us to be a community of resistance, discernment, and courage. Maybe it can help us find our place in the world. I think one of the dangers of any kind of like meta story like this is that it can create one template as if there's one life that we're all supposed to live. Um, and following Jesus that way, I don't think it's actually that smart or that wise to use a better phrase if we all became roaming sages offering parables to people <laughs> there's no one looking after the kids at home there's no one embedded in communities of flourishing so i think if we're looking for an answer saying what is the homogenous life that we should each live that's complicated but I think what we might be able to ask is what deep call there is within us as individuals and us as a community. And then if we live out those deep calls, what kind of world that we create. Um, and as I said at the start, I think we actually need these resources of resistance because um, I think there are many stories about who we're supposed to be in the world that doesn't actually create a very good world for us or for other people. And I think we need to tap into other stories if we're going to create a world which is truly good for everybody. And if we believe that God truly cares about everybody, that's something I think we should think about. We are going to have communion together now. Um, I hope I've made enough sense that something in that is coherent.
but not enough sense that you think that um, that's the end because it's not. <laughs> Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to dig. We're going to kind of use that as a framework, and then we're going to dig into a couple of scripts um, that I think we need to wrestle with and contend with. Um, as individuals and as a community. So we're going to do that together over the next couple of weeks. I was raised in a story of Christians being people who do great things and change the world. Um, I was raised on prophecies of becoming a very famous preacher and a prophet to the nations. I mean, everyone was, so it's not like I'm very special, but that was the goal. I was raised um, on stories of revival and greatness and everyone suddenly realizing how cool we were i was raised on stories of giving it all up to go and become humbly famous for jesus and i just want to sandwich together that poem from the start about hiding from your children as they scream outside the toilet (laughs) scrolling instagram looking for some sense of life and meaning and all of this with this little poem here. Doing the laundry and the dishes and meal preparation are not tasks of the mundane because being clothed and clean and fed declares the dignity of human life and nurtures us into new days, into new eras. They are not mundane, no. They are rituals of care. Jesus, the failure. Teach us what it is to be great. Help us know how to create a world that is good and kind. Show us when to be brave and when to shut up. Amen.